Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is John Forsyth, and I have the great privilege of being the vicar here at St Jude's, and a very warm welcome to all, particularly uh, to Priya and, and Divya's entourage. We are delighted that you are with us, and it's been a great joy to celebrate their baptism, which uh, the reading we have from Acts is very relevant, in fact, for a baptism service. We are starting a new series here at St Jude's. We uh, traditionally will go through a book of the Bible, looking at it, uh, and we've just finished uh, a previous series, and now we're starting Acts. And as we go through it, I think you'll find it is an action-packed book of the Bible. Uh, It contains religious opposition, economic problems, internal fights, church friction, persecutions, deaths, the creation of a megachurch in one day, 3,000 people in one day... Um, Next week, come back and find out how that happens. Storms and shipwrecks, beatings, courts and legal battles, imprisonments and great escapes, visions, sorcerers, miracles. This book has everything. Uh, It would be a great book to turn into a TV series. But notice too, it's not just a kind of random collection of things. It's actually a very orderly account Uh, Luke, who is the author, works very hard to give us a detailed and careful and detailed history. In other words, what we have here is a historical narrative of the early church. Uh, Luke, by the way, who is the author, is the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And he kind of mentions that in the opening verse of Acts, where he says... In my former book, good, a good author does this to make you, oh, you have a, I better go buy your former book. Uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving in instructions to, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he has chosen. Now, he writes to this guy called uh, Theophilus. Uh, that, that name means lover of God or dear to God. Uh, and maybe this, this name is a personification of Luke's readers. Uh, it could also be a real person, uh, perhaps the person who has uh, crowdfunded his writing uh, and the publication of it. You would need a sponsor, someone to, to kind of pay for the whole thing. So perhaps this is Theophilus. And so when we get to Acts, it really is Luke season 2. This is what's happened. And it's really important that Luke does this because what he's showing us is that Acts is, uh, is part of the continuing plan that God has for the world. In other words, the Gospels are not the end of God's plan. There is more to come. It's a continuation. And this is one of the reasons why Luke starts Acts with the resurrected Jesus appearing and speaking to his followers about the kingdom of God in verses 3 to 8, rather than jumping straight to the beginning of the church. He wants to show that there's there's a continuation. Uh, Authors often speak of Luke and Acts, this kind of opening chapter being a hinge. Do you know when they say previously, in the last season? That's what Luke is doing here as he starts Acts. He's reminding us that this is a continuing story of God's work for his people. We read in verse 3, after his suffering, he, that is Jesus, presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so as we read through Acts and realize this is the continuing story of God's work, it's really important to remember that this is also your story. This is our story. 
if the book of Acts went on, say to chapter 45,694, we could read well about St. Jude's in Parkville and how the gospel has gone out to the very edges of the earth, all the way to Australia. In other words, there's a trajectory in this narrative that leads to us. And so as we look at it together, my hope and prayer is that we will learn much about what it means to be a church, about being a body of believers, and about what our mission is as a church, what we are to do. So let's look at chapter 1. Three key things happen in chapter 1. We see Jesus promise the Holy Spirit firstly. Then we see Jesus ascend to heaven. And by the way, this week is Ascension Week. This is Ascension Sunday, so we have planned this perfectly. Uh, Bonus point, anyone know which day in the church calendar is actually Ascension Day? Ooh, okay. It was last Thursday. Just, there you go. For your your calendar next year. Uh, And thirdly, we see the apostles uh, uh, choose someone to replace Judas. Now, Judas is very interesting, and by the way, uh, we are St. Jude's. Technically speaking, we are St. Judas's. Because uh, the writers of the early church realized that Judas is not a great name, and so Jude and Judas is actually the same name. Uh, but we, we go by St. Jude. It's like how Kentucky Fried Chicken changed it to KFC for, for marketing purposes. So let's look at this uh, one, one section at a time. Uh, we see firstly that Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit in verses 4 to 8. So have a look there with me. He instructs the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift my Father promises, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what a relevant passage this is for today. Uh, By the way, Luke records this this same kind of thing, this same promise uh, at the end in Luke 24, 49. And what's really interesting is, look at the disciples' response to this promise. They think, uh, uh, great, this is it, this is, this is God's kingdom. Uh, and they think God, to coin a phrase, is going to make Israel great again. They've got it on their hats, that's what they think is going to happen. They will bring God's kingdom on earth. The Romans will be kicked out. The promised king will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over everyone. That's what they're expecting at this point. All nations will come and bow down before this king. That's their expectation. And that's why it says in verse 6, they gathered around and said to him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they're waiting for. They think the promise of the Holy Spirit will mean a promise of conquering power, finally. And Jesus makes it clear, yes, you'll be given power, but for something else entirely. Look at verse 8. And verse 8, in a way, is a really key verse. It's a summary of the whole book of Acts in one verse, where Luke kind of sets the vision for the rest of this work. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Do you see what Jesus is saying to his followers here? The purpose for them in receiving the Holy Spirit 
is so that they can not conquer the Romans, but proclaim the good news about Jesus. That's going to be their mission. That's what they're going to be empowered to do. And we'll see this, this kind of three steps follow on. I'm, I'm not stealing too much thunder for the person preaching next week. I'm just setting the scene. So don't feel like I'm stealing. Mike, I'm sorry. I'm not stealing too much of your thunder. Um, hint, they do receive the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. No, there's no kind of spoiler alert there. Uh, that's the day of Pentecost where there's fire and wind and they, they speak in other languages. A very powerful moment. So that promise, number one, does come true. Secondly, what do they do? As soon as they receive the Holy Spirit... They start proclaiming with their mouths what they've seen with their eyes and heard with their ears as they follow Jesus. And Peter will give this amazing, powerful speech to a crowd of many thousands and he calls them to repent and follow the Lord Jesus. And by the way, that's what the church still does today. We proclaim the great message of the gospel and call people to repent and believe. And this is a very powerful reminder of one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. There's other things as well, but points people to Jesus. And so if you have received the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? Part of your role, part of your calling is to point people to to Jesus. Uh, some Christians are sometimes criticized for not mentioning the Holy Spirit enough. But the role of the Holy Spirit is not to point to himself, it is to point to Jesus. And so the mark of someone filled by the Spirit is someone who can't help. They're so overfilled with joy and love that they keep reminding and pointing other people to Jesus as well. And well, who do these early apostles point to, uh, point Jesus to? Well, it's from people from all around the world, not just the Jewish people. It's multicultural proclamation. People from the ends of the earth have gathered in Jerusalem. And people were amazed because it didn't matter what language you spoke or where you came from, they could understand this message that Peter was proclaiming. 3,000 people become followers in one day. Can you imagine the follow-up that you would have to do as a church to follow up 3,000 people? Can you imagine if today 3,000 people turned up? We couldn't, where are we going to fit them? We'd have to build tents and get a bigger space. But hey, no more roster problems. I guess that's the, you know, that's the, the benefit on the other side. And time and time again, as we read through Acts, we'll see this pattern as women and men who are empowered by the Spirit proclaim the gospel of Jesus and people come and follow from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that kind of ripple effect as the gospel is proclaimed throughout Acts. It's, it's structured in that way. Chapters 1 to 7, guess where they're based? In Jerusalem and Judea. And then chapters 8 to 12, guess where they're based? Around Samaria. And then 13, 28 the Gentile territory all the way to Rome, which in those days was the ends of the earth. It wasn't Werribee or wherever, you know, it's... it's I'm sorry for that, I like Werribee, it's a great place. <laughs> even to Melbourne, that's the ends of... They can't even comprehend how far away the gospel has spread. 
And if you've been at St. Jude's for a while, you know we have a statement, a vision statement for our church, which is to be a church for the whole person, the whole community, the whole city, and the whole world. And that vision statement is really based very much on that verse. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. As the gospel transforms people, it transforms a community which seeks to transform a city, which seeks to transform the world for Christ. And so we want to have that same vision as a church, to be outward looking, to proclaim to our friends and family, to proclaim to our colleagues at work, to proclaim to this great city, to beyond Werribee, to all around this world, the great and amazing news of Jesus' love, that he has come and died and been raised for us. That is the great empowerment of the spirit that we have. That is our mission. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in verses 9 to 11, we see the ascension, that is, Jesus ascends into heaven. In verse 9, we read, after he said this, that is Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from sight. When they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white beside him, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking at the sky? Isn't that the dumbest question you were thought? Have you not said, Jesus just ascended, that's why we're looking up? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, these two men who are obviously angels are saying, your mission is not just to stand there looking amazed, but to get on with the work that you're about to be commissioned for. I think there's a bit of humour there as well. And the ascension of Jesus is actually really, really important. It actually fulfills a great Old Testament prophecy in Daniel about the Son of Man and this idea of clouds. You might have mentioned that, notice that clouds, it's not just a Melbourne thing, it's, it's actually in the scriptures, uh, a very symbol of God's power and glory. Every time someone goes up a mountain, there are clouds. As God's people are being led by a fiery pillar uh, at night, but by what? a pillar of cloud by day. It's a symbol of God's powerful presence. And we read in Daniel 7.13 that uh, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked and saw before me there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Here is this Jesus fulfilling this great promise of God's son of man. And also I think really helpfully helps us answer the question, where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? Uh, I remember asking my daughter when she was four, she's now uh, at university, uh, this question on the way home from church. Because people say, oh, you know, Jesus is in my heart. I guess that's an element of that's true. And she said, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. (laughs) Been listening to the creed. That's always encouraging when your daughter listens to the creed. And will return to judge the living and the dead. That is where the Lord Jesus is now. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's that's what the ascension tells us. That Jesus' work is now one who has ascended and intercedes for us. And that Jesus will return. And that every eye will see him. 
And thirdly, it links Jesus' ministry with the ministry of the church. The church doesn't kind of fill the void left by Jesus. Now, the church and the Spirit's work through the church is the continuing ministry of Jesus. It's what Jesus continues to do and teach from his ascension onwards. We have the way, once again, Luke and Acts kind of help us understand that tension well. Uh, in Luke 24, 45 to 46, Luke tells us what Jesus did while he was on earth. And it says there, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. In other words, the great gospel message. Then in Luke 24, 47 to 48, he tells the story of Acts. He says, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so what Luke and the other gospel writers do is tell us the message about who Jesus was, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And Acts tells us the great message, the great story of how this message is spread from this ragbag bunch of followers to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. That's the kind of longer name for this book. But you could almost lengthen that to say it's the Acts of the ascended Jesus through the Holy Spirit working in his apostles to glorify his name and spread the message of Christ. Now that's not as catchy, I realize, but that's what's going on in the book of Acts. Jesus is present in every moment as he works through the Spirit, enabling his apostles to proclaim his gospel to his world. That's why the ascension is so important. And thirdly, we read that the apostles choose someone to replace Judas in 12 to 26. And this is actually the longest section in chapter 1. So Luke obviously thinks this is important. He's giving us lots of, lots of information. And their gatherings, about 120 of them in an upper room. So this room is kind of, there's about 120 people here today. So it gives you a kind of rough idea. And notice that before they do anything, they pray. Before they do anything, they pray. Verse 14, they join together constantly in prayer. They know they're going to be equipped by the Spirit to do God's work. And so they pray. And then in verses 16 to 22, Peter makes a long argument explaining the need to replace Judas to ensure that the number of apostles equals 12. Now, the language here can be a bit confusing around disciple and apostle. Uh, Jesus had lots of disciples. The word disciple literally means followers. So you and I, if if you follow Jesus, you are a disciple. We're disciples, we're followers of Jesus. But Jesus intentionally chose 12 apostles, which means sent ones or those who are sent, uh, to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel that symbolize God's people in the Old Testament. And what we read here is the qualifications to be an apostle. So you may well be a disciple, but it's much harder to be an apostle. You need to be someone who has traveled with Jesus from the beginning. 
That's the first qualification. Secondly, notice too, they need to be somebody who had witnessed Jesus' resurrection appearances with their own eyes. The word witness is the word where we get the word testimony from. So they have to be eyewitness, say, yes, I, I was with Jesus when he said that. My own eyes have seen and my fingers have touched the resurrected Jesus. They are the qualifications. In other words, they want to make sure the people who, who are commissioned to send this great message out are legitimate. Have heard and have seen not just what Jesus taught, but his resurrection, which is so important. They are personal witness to the life, teachings, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And once again, they pray. In other words, they want God to guide the process. And they cast lots, and Matthias is added to create the 12 disciples. I always wondered, in my mind, what about the guy who missed out? <laughs> was he relieved or was he disappointed? <laughs> and what's happening here? This is important because what we're seeing in Acts is a re reshaping of what it means to be God's people. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes were the structure, the way that God's people were arranged. And if you're really smart, you can probably name Asher and Dan and all the, those 12 tribes. But here we see these 12 tribes are now no longer limited just to Jewish people. What's going to happen is, as these 12 go out to build the tribe, to proclaim the gospel, what they're going to do is go beyond Jerusalem and go beyond Judea. They're going to go to the ends of the earth. And what this means is that this new people of God is going to be radically inclusive in a way that's quite confronting for many of the early Christians. In fact, lots of the debate in the early church is, what do we do with these Gentiles? They're crazy. They don't follow our laws. They don't understand the law. They're Greeks. They're Romans. They're French. They're Africans. They're Indians. I haven't gotten any Australians yet, but they will. They'll get some. That is the new body of Christ. It is radically inclusive. And one of the things I love about St. Jude's is we have a very small taste of that radical inclusiveness. We, we've done some recent survey work as we plan ahead for our church and our church has about 42 nationalities represented. This is one of six congregations that, that meet on Sunday. 42 nationalities. About half of St. Jude's are not from Melbourne. We come from all around Australia, all around the world. But we are one because we are one in Christ. And what that means, of course, is there is no place for racism or, or sexism or ageism or any kind of exclusive... You can't be part of God's family. It is radically inclusive right at the very beginning. Because what happens straight away in Acts 2, I'm giving it away again, sorry Mike. Of those 3,000, they're from all over the place. And people think that the disciples, the apostles are drunk at 10 in the morning. This kind of stuff's crazy. But God's church, church is radically inclusive. So what do we do then? Well, I think as we, as we go through Acts together as a church, I think it will help us in at least three ways. 
Firstly, my hope and prayer is that it will help strengthen your trust in the Lord Jesus. We will look at the stories of brothers and sisters and we'll see the great and astonishing confidence that they have in places which, frankly, are terrifyingly difficult. Where their very lives are on the line, they will proudly stand up for Jesus. We will see how God, through his Spirit, sustains and upholds very ordinary people in ordinary walks of life who are in extraordinary situations proclaiming the gospel. These are people who are joyful and singing in prison, who are bold in the face of opposition, who are always speaking words of truth and love, always speaking about Jesus, even when they know it will cost them their lives. These are stories that call us to trust Jesus more and more. I think secondly too, as we go through Acts, the flip side of this coin is it'll actually help weaken the pride we have in ourselves. As we see God working extraordinary things through ordinary people, it should undermine our self-confidence and increase our confidence in him. The apostles are not supermen with superhuman strength. They are humble. For the most part, uneducated men who are fiercely proud, not in themselves, but in the one who has sent them. And so it strips away any arrogance or pride we have in our own abilities and helps us lean completely and only in God's grace. And thirdly, my hope and prayer is that as we read Acts together, it will widen your vision for the gospel. Jesus is concerned for the whole world. Are you concerned for the whole world? He's not concerned for denominational boundaries or language or geographic boundaries or race or culture as barriers to the gospel. The book of Acts shows us that that God's love is far bigger. His message is far bigger and inclusive than all those things. Because here's the secret, right? Jesus didn't come just for Anglicans. Shock, right? I know. That's some truth bomb here this morning. Not just, look, yes, for Anglicans, don't get me right, loves Anglicans. Absolutely, praise the Lord. But not just Anglicans. <laughs> Jesus' mission and vision are to the ends of the world, not the ends of the pew. And so where's, where's your vision for church? Is it just for what we do on Sundays? Or what you do in your small group? Or when we pray? Or do you have a bigger gospel, Jesus-focused vision to the ends of the earth? Because our church exists for the benefit of those members who aren't members yet. that's, That's the vision for the church. That's our vision, to be a church for the whole person, the community, the whole city and the whole world. That we must constantly lift our eyes beyond our own concerns to this great world that needs to know the love of Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer that as we look, as we see God's plan being fulfilled, that we'll be excited by that vision. That our our eyes be lifted and we'll be renewed. 
and be committed and passionate about telling people about the wonderful, saving news of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a song where we ask God to do just that. To let his kingdom come, that we may be part of that as we proclaim Christ. But let me pray before we sing. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this astonishing history of your church that we are looking through. We thank you for the ordinary women and men who are so empowered by your spirit that they speak of your extraordinary grace. Father, by your spirit, may we be encouraged by them and your word. May we lift our eyes and see this world so desperately in need of your love. And like them, be so filled with your spirit that we cannot help but tell people about the risen Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.